Welcome to the Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, Antoinette Daly details the aims of the Australian Space Agency. And we look back 30 years when Frank Tomlinson reviews the 30 years of achievement in NASA's Explorer series of satellites. And we have another in our Planet Earth series, this time looking at methane and measuring phytoplankton from space, as well as a few other things. Well, first up, we have Space Show News. On Mars, the helicopter Ingenuity made another flight yesterday. This brings the logbook to a dozen flights. It flew 450 metres at an altitude of 10 metres. That's an average ground speed at 4.3 metres per second, uh, was slower than the 5 metres per second of flights 9, 10 and 11. Now, the flight time was 170 seconds, the longest so far. The slower speed was because the helicopter stopped and hovered before returning to its takeoff point. The aim of the mission was to perform some location scouting for the Perseverance rover team of a surface feature called Raised Ridges. Now, Perseverance is using auto-navigation to drive a narrow path between these raised ridges and an area of treacherous sand dunes called CETA. Perseverance will meet Ingenuity in the coming days. On Flight 12, Ingenuity climbed 10 metres above the raised ridges, then flew approximately 235 metres in a direction that the Ingenuity team described as east-northeast. Once over CETA, the helicopter made a 5-metre sidestep. This allowed Ingenuity to get side-by-side images of the terrain suitable for the construction of stereoscopic pictures. Then, keeping the camera in the same direction, Ingenuity backtracked to its takeoff point. The aim was to capture 10 colour images of CETAR in the hope that the Perseverance rover team will find them useful. The team will interpret the pictures to identify boulders, rocky outcrops and other geological features that may be worthy of further scrutiny by the rover. 
Well, this twelfth flight has brought the total flight time to twenty-one minutes and forty-eight seconds, and the distance flown to two thousand six hundred and seventy meters. Back here on Earth, Rocket Lab has announced that it will launch a Finnish satellite developing space junk removal technologies. The satellite is called Aurora Sat One. It will use water-based propulsion jets and plasma brakes. Aurora Sat One will be launching, sorry, will be launched along with other satellites in the fourth quarter of this year by an Electron rocket from the Mahia Peninsula, which is on the east coast of the North Island of New Zealand. The idea is to test methods that satellites can use to deorbit at the end of their useful life. In other news, Rocket Lab has signed a deal with in-space manufacturing company Varda Space Industries to produce three photon spacecraft that will integrate with their space factories. Now, high-volume products will be manufactured in zero gravity and returned to Earth in Varda's re-entry capsule. Now, we are going to go off to the Moon Village Association, where Antoinette Daly is going to talk about the Australian Space Agency. Well, it's three years since the agency was formed, and Antoinette Daly was speaking soon after the formation of the agency. Great. I think we're going to sit down here and be a bit more um, engaging, um, and by all means, um, I'm excited. Firstly, one, isn't it exciting we finally got an Australian space agency? It's only taken about 60 years, and we might be a little late to the party, but it doesn't mean that we haven't been around for a while. So Australia was actually the third country to launch a satellite. So after, after Russia and, and, the, and the United States, we were the third country, and we actually launched a lot of satellites from Australia in the 1950s and 60s. So whilst we might have not taken the chance to coordinate ourselves back then, it's really good that you know we're, we're eight months old now and that the Space Agency is here for what is called Space 2.0. So we like to say that we're very different. Um, lots of people be very familiar with the, the NASA logos, the, the ESA logos, and the logos for the lots of other countries. But Australia is different. We're, we're, not, we're not a NASA. We're not an ESA. We don't have $20 billion to run out, run our industry. And we really wanted to make this uniquely Australian. Um, and it's very exciting that we can also incorporate the world's oldest astronomers as part of our brand and our image. Um, and it's not to be undone by the fact that um, we, we do have those um, that one history and we can look at the past and the future as well. Uh, so as I said, I am um, the look after the operations for the agency um, and I know that there's lots of people who are always excited about jobs, so I'm also the HR person, the finance person, the, the government person to, to have a chat to afterwards. Um, I just wanted to put a quick insight. I know that people have discussed lots of things that have been happening in space, but this last six months has been very, very busy, and I didn't even get to add the extra bits that have happened in the last um, uh, last few weeks as well. But it definitely shows that uh, the space space is now normal operations. There is so much occurring in it, and Australia actually has an important place to to participate. 
I wanted to make it very clear what our purpose was. Our purpose is very much about transforming and growing a, a globally respected industry. Uh, it, it is very much centered around the global economy. The, the current economy is about uh, $4 billion and about 10,000 people. And we have in our purpose to, to actually grow that threefold. So in 10 years' time, we're going to make it a $12 billion industry with another 20,000 uh, jobs available. And that's, uh, that's a huge growth for any type of industry to, to, to actually achieve. Now, the other part of this is that we also want to inspire and improve the lives of Australians by, by taking into or getting into the space industry. And, of course, uh, we need to do this uh, through a really strong engagement, both internationally with our space, uh, International Space Agency colleagues and also very much here in, in Australia with both the states and territories as well as with the, uh, the domestic industry. Um, I've just very quickly put up some of our responsibilities, but I wanted to make it clear that we're, we're about coordinating, we're about giving advice, we're also about actually um, trying to, to lead the international civil space um, agenda here from Australia. So that's one of the things that people really needed when, when, the, uh, when the decision was made to actually establish the, uh, the Australian Space Agency was that lots of businesses here were like trying to, to do individual agreements internationally and lacking that Australian coordination made it really, really difficult. Um, and then, of course, we do have the very important part of actually administering uh, the legislation that allows for, for space activities to occur from Australia. Um, that very last line is an incredibly important line, and it's part of my, uh, my personal KPIs, uh, and that's inspiring Australia and, and getting the next generation of the workforce. So people that are going to be working in this industry in the next uh, 10 to 15 years uh, are people that are doing, going to be doing jobs in that that I can't even imagine what they will be just yet. But it's going to be exciting. Um, uh, very quickly, I wanted to just point out that Australia is a global responsible citizen and the moon is definitely uh, part of that global responsibility. Um, and I, if I have time, I will, I'll go through why it is. But we're also uh, working on our own legislation here to come into, um, into fruition from about end of August this year. And that will be a very new modern way of um, regulating the space industry. Um, very excitingly, whilst we might be only seven months old, we've, we've, we've achieved a lot. So on the launch licences, uh, just uh, to give a sense of scale, uh, prior to the agency starting in the last you know, five or six years, uh, there were less than five applications for launch licences. I can tell you now that the interest and the number of li launch licences we've given in the last six months has more than doubled that, and the amount in the pipeline is is. is considerably more than that. So it shows that there's a great amount of uh, commercial interest in the, in the space industry. We've reached what they call 50 million Australians. So basically it means that we have reached, uh, reached out to every single Australian person. So almost every Australian has heard or read something about the Australian Space Agency. And that's really, really exciting. Uh, and it's very exciting for us to be able to engage with so many people in such a proactive way. Uh, we've done a lot of um, travelling around to try to talk to uh, not just our state and territory government colleagues, but to all the industry associations, uh, interested STEM groups all across the country, just to be able to get a sense of what's out there. We've signed, I think, now up to our six um, 
strategic partnership with local um, companies. And these are companies that have actually made a very strong statement to Australia that they are going to grow the industry here. They are going to put up jobs. They're going to invest in Australia. And that's, um, that's a really op exciting time for us. And we've also signed uh, four uh, strict, uh, international memorandums of understanding to actually do cooperative work with other space agencies. So we've got that with the French, the Canadian, the UK, and very recently with the United Arab Emirates. Um, I just wanted to give you a quick look at some of our competitive advantages in Australia. This is where, um, noting that we're an industry panel, this is where we've got most of our commercial opportunities. Um, and I can't stress how exciting it is and how much is being done already in these factors. Very quickly, at the last uh, election, the government committed about $260 million just into position navigation and timing. So if you've ever opened up your mobile phone and had a look at the uh, Google Maps or, or Apple Maps and looked at your little blue dot across the screen and watched yourself crossing the roads and trying to get directions, that map is accurate to about five metres and it's also very much dependent on mobile phone towers. Uh, with the funding that's being used, it's going to mean that 100% of Australia, plus its maritime areas, is going to have GPS accuracy to down to 10 centimetres. Now, this is very exciting considering at the moment we've only got about 30% coverage across Australia, and, 70, and, and having now 100% means that for all those people who are excited about autonomous vehicles and robotics and operating things from a distance, that's going to be possible across the whole of Australia. Then in the uh, community areas where there are mobile phone towers, we're going to have that down to three centimetres. And this is using satellite technology uh, that, that the government is investing in. Three centimetres means that you, you can be able to, to communicate and, and navigate to, to the highest level of precision from, from a distance. Um, I'm excited. I give this one a lot as an example, but I'm really excited because I have uh, family members that are, are hard of seeing, and this is going to revolutionise, for instance, the, the, the vision-impaired industry who now don't need to rely on, on expensive access to a dog or to other mechanisms. They can be able to use their phones to be able to, to see and be able to move, and that's, that's wonderful opportunities. But, you know, our farming community loves it because it means that they can monitor herding cattle from a distance. Uh, they can know exactly how much is in their dams and then their water flows, and that's very helpful for the Australian commercial industry. Um, some of the opportunities that we see coming forward, I, um, I'm, we, we've just had a session on space medicine, but it's definitely a growing area. Um, but... Uh, the, the role that Australia and space, particularly in the mining industry, is obviously got very strong uh, capabilities here. And uh, I just wanted to throw up where, where we see some of the commercial opportunities coming through. What's happening over the next six months is that we're establishing our location to our headquarters to be in uh, Adelaide, but we're a, a national Australian space agency, so we're working really hard now with the states and territories across the country to, to bolster and uh, support the growing economy across the states. Um, we're back to hopefully release our strategy, our 10-year strategy, um, and that's got some exciting opportunities uh, looking in, in the future. Um, and I also wanted to pull on the fact that we're, lots of people come up to me going, when are we going to get an agreement with NASA or ESA? And I can tell you that we're working really, really hard on those, um, those, those are government agreements. They're, those are big companies to, to, to have an agreement with, and it's not as simple as uh, uh, signing a piece of paper. 
but very quickly because we're all here to know about the moon and what we're doing in moon. So um, one is that now that the Australian Space Agency is uh, established and has got a reputation as being a, a formidable player in the space, we have a table at the seat for most of the international lunar-related activities. So, on the, the, for instance, on, on the moon race, we're part of the advisory committee now that's going to be looking and monitoring projects that are being done through the moon race. Uh, on the NASA Lunar Gateway projects, we're, we're actually part of the, one of the organising committees because we're, we're one of the partners that NASA would like us to, to be involved and we're, we're right there at the start to be able to see what we can do and particularly where we can work with, with companies. Um, I know NASA has recently given out um, agreements to, to nine uh, organisations and Australia is working with one of those organisations about doing missions to, to the lunar. And of course we've got the Moon Treaty, which we are a, a signatory to, which means we're going to, to look after the Moon and not uh, to take over it uh, and colonise it, except for, for the peaceful purposes. Um, but what we're doing uh, is that before we didn't have a seat, and now Australia definitely has a seat, and it's, it's recognised as a player, and the most importantly is that we're now one of the global players that can participate. So I think that's it, and thank you very much. Speaking three years ago at the Moon Village Association right here in Melbourne, that was Internet Daily of the Australian Space Agency. And in those three years since she spoke, uh, the headquarters of the Australian Space Agency has been moved to Adelaide. We have signed up uh, to join NASA in some of the moon activities and uh, a number of those satellite launches that she spoke of has happened. Now, on the Space Show here on Southern FM, we're going to crank the clock back 30 years when Frank Tomlinson reports on the Explorer series of satellites. So he's looking back 30 years from 1991. Here's Frank. NASA the National Aeronautics and Space Administration presents the Space Story. When a NASA program like the Explorers has been going on as long as it has, and has been as successful as the Explorers have been, it tends to get lost in the background. When Explorer 1 was launched some 30 years ago, it was big news. Since then, Explorers have been launched, done their jobs, and it's become almost routine. Dr. David Gilman, a senior staff scientist in NASA's Astrophysics Division, notes that since Explorer 1, a lot of work has been done in the program. Since then, there have been 66 Explorer missions launched. Uh, it's been a sustained program of uh, small and medium-sized scientific satellites that has been developed by NASA. 1961 is the beginning of a sustained program of launching small and uh, medium-sized scientific satellites. Those 66 Explorer missions are not the end of the program. Three new missions will be taking place over the next several years. But what about the many missions since 1961? Did they find anything new? Did they tell us something we didn't know? These serve the scientific disciplines of 
space plasma physics with the auroras and with the radiation belts and the solar wind and all these kinds of things. And in fact, led to the discovery of those different phenomena in space where you think of a vacuum. And in fact, there's a lot of great activity going on with the few particles that are there and the very weak magnetic fields have a strong interaction with each other. It's a fertile area for scientific investigation. More than half of the Explorer missions have been launched on Scout, one of the smallest launch vehicles. But not all Explorer missions use small or medium-sized satellites. One of the largest of all the Explorers was the Cosmic Background Explorer, and it was, you know, over uh, 15 feet high and required a uh, Delta launch vehicle, it weighed 6,000 pounds. Though some Explorer program satellites have gotten larger. That doesn't mean the role of the small scientific satellite has been ruled out. In the coming years, small satellites with specific scientific missions will be launched. They'll be using small launch vehicles similar to the Scout. Again, Dave Gilman. It's been NASA's job to lead in the conquest of space. And we've done this with our scientific satellites, starting from very small scientific satellites at the beginning to larger and larger satellites, including the Hubble Space Telescope and the Gamma Ray Observatory, which are immense uh, satellites. As we have done this, however, opening up behind us has been really a new frontier for space conquest in the arena of small satellites. The three new missions will be known as SAMPEX, FAST and SWAS. The first, SAMPEX, short for Solar Anomalous and Magnetospheric Particle Explorer, is due for launch in June of 1992. The others will follow on an approximate yearly basis. FAST is really going to investigate what causes aurora to appear. SWAS is the submillimeter wave astronomy satellite. It is our first mission to outer space to look at uh, the molecules that you can find in the space between the stars. Planning for the three new Explorer missions started in 1988. Some tough restrictions were placed on those missions. The missions would be one a year with an average cost of under $30 million, and the satellite would have to be small enough to fit on a scout launch vehicle. What about these self-imposed restrictions? Are they being met? It is an important part of the story to know that the spacecraft for uh, each of the missions will be built in-house by young engineers at the Goddard Space Flight Center. They've been doing an outstanding job in bringing the first mission on schedule and within budget. This has been The Space Story, brought to you by this station and NASA. For the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, this is Frank Tomlinson. And since 1991, when Frank filed that report, further Explorer satellites have been launched, although they're no longer called Explorer, you know, like Explorer 1, then Explorer 2, Explorer 3, and so on. They uh, have other names, but they often have the word Explorer in their acronym name. And uh, by last count, I think there was about at least 80 had been launched. Now, please get your diary handy because we have several entries for it. Big news in Moorabbin. Get very special beef from Glen Alviangus at the new butcher opposite Woolies. Top quality meat at fair prices. Moorabbin Butchers. Check Brisket the Bull out the front. Moorabbinbutchers.com.au Southern FM sponsor. 
I'm Professor Rob Brooks, and I'm interested in you. In fact, I'm interested in all people because I'm an evolutionary biologist. What's that mean? Well, put simply, I study how sex has shaped human lives and societies. Things like how we choose mates, the clever ways we make ourselves attractive, and how sex is linked to diet and lifespan. Interesting, hey? It's all science. This National Science Week, find an event near you or online at scienceweek.net.au. This program is presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Now, the August 23 meeting of the Space Association of Australia will be held online, not in person this month. Now, this is owing to the COVID-19 restrictions. Now, you can join the meeting if you have internet access and a relatively recent operating system that can run the Zoom software. You will need to register. Alternately, you can watch anonymously by streaming the Space Association's YouTube channel. This month, we present a Western Australia Space Capability Showcase. Now, this will have presentations on the Square Kilometre Array Radio Telescope, the Western Australia Optical Ground Station, and BINAR, the BINAR Space Programme. Now, that last is a project to build the next generation of Australian small spacecraft. The session starts at 7.30pm and should last for two hours. Now, further details and instructions on how to join Zoom or stream the YouTube is at, and here's where you need your diary, space.asn.au. So that's space.asn.au for the meeting on August the 23rd starting at 7.30pm. Now, if you would like more information about the association that presents this program, then once again, you could go to space.asn.au, space.asn.au. Have you got a classic vintage or veteran car that needs recommissioning or restoring? Not sure what's the best way to go about it? Need advice on restoration, preservation, curation or project management? Then contact Paul at Classic Cars with Character on 0412 534 131. That's Classic Cars with Character 0412 534 131 for your specific project assessment and friendly assistance. Southern FM sponsor. Victoria, every one of us needs to check in everywhere we see a sign, every time. Checking in only takes a second to do, but every time we do, it means we can stop the spread of coronavirus and protect our businesses, our communities and each other. So let's all check in. Everyone, everywhere, every time. For more information, visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. On FM, online and on TuneIn 24-7. This is 88.3 Southern FM. Earth below us, drifting, falling, floating, weightless, calling, calling home. Home. 
Welcome to episode 17 of our Planet Earth series. Now these programs are a mix of factual reports and uh, sometimes some music and uh, yeah, other bits and pieces. A satellite is under construction that will be launched into orbit in the Northern Hemisphere autumn of 2023. Called PACE, it will study phytoplankton in the world's oceans. Now, phytoplankton are microscopic algae that form the base of the aquatic food chain. Now, how, you may ask, can a satellite hundreds of kilometers out in space measure microscopic algae in the ocean? The satellite will carry the ocean color instrument. This is a hyperspectral scanning radiometer that will measure light reflected off the ocean, that's sunlight. The term hyperspectral means finely detailed measurements of color. Now, this instrument will measure light from the near ultraviolet through the visible and into the near infrared. The plankton can be identified because they reflect particular colors. Indeed, different species of plankton reflect different colors. This will allow the satellite to map not only where the plankton is, but also tell what type it is. The PACE satellite will be able to identify both beneficial and harmful phytoplankton communities. Now, PACE is an acronym for Plankton Aerosol Cloud Ocean Ecosystem. In February this year, it passed its critical design review and a system-level engineering test unit completed thermal vacuum tests in March. Another instrument to be flown aboard PACE is being tested in space. A satellite called HARP, H-A-R-P was launched last November. This hyperangular rainbow polarimeter continues to perform well, so the follow-on HARP-2 is now being assembled. A third instrument for the PACE satellite is called SPEX-1. This spectro-polarimeter for planetary exploration is being built by the Netherlands Institute for Space Research and by Airbus Defence and Space Netherlands. Now, SPEX-1 has been undergoing environmental testing and will be delivered to the PACE team early next year. Otto Haskamp is the Principal Investigator for for SPEX-1 and uh, he works at the Netherlands Institute for Space Research. Uh, SPEX-1 will measure the intensity and degree of polarization of light that is reflected by small particles in the atmosphere. These particles are called aerosols. So overall, aerosols uh, counterbalance the warming by greenhouse gases, but we don't know by what amount. And because this is so unknown, uh, it's hard to predict future climate change. And with SPEX-1, we want to accurately measure the effect of aerosols on clouds and climate. 
Jerome Reitjens is the instrument scientist for SPEX-1. Again, he works at the Netherlands Institute for Space Research. One challenge in building and designing SPEX-1 was the design of the optical system. Since SPEX-1 is a multi-viewing instrument, we needed to be able to capture the light from five different directions into a single compact instrument. And we look forward to that satellite telling us more about our planet Earth. Earth below us, drifting, falling, floating, weightless. During the recent bushfires in the western United States, an instrument on the International Space Station was providing firefighters with high-resolution images of the fire's progression. The eco-stress instrument measures the surface temperature below the path of the space station. The station passes over the northwestern states such as Oregon twice a day. The images have a resolution of around about 70 metres. They show where the fire fronts are and where the critical infrastructure is threatened. Comparing images in a time sequence shows the movement of the fires. Well, I think it's time for a little bit of music. Yes, of course, it's going to be about Earth. And uh, this is called D-Erd, and it's by a singer called Judith Heyman, one of our favourites here on The Space Show. And in this case, an interstellar traveller sings nostalgically about the distant Earth. Thank you. 
meine eigene Knacken sind wir gemacht. Sie uns Vertranis, sie unser geliebtes is a global monitoring provider based in Seattle. Late this month, Rocket Lab will launch two of its satellites from the Mahia Peninsula using an electron rocket. Two other similar launches will follow during September. Last May, an electron failed to orbit two black sky satellites of the same type. The August launch will orbit Black Sky's 8th and 9th satellites in their planned constellation. The craft are high-resolution, multispectral satellites in low Earth orbit. They offer real-time geospatial intelligence and monitoring services. Black Sky combines high-resolution images of the Earth captured by its small satellites with its proprietary artificial intelligence software to deliver analytics and insights to industries. These industries include transportation, infrastructure, land use, defense supply chain management, and humanitarian aid. Now, Black Sky is not to be confused with the Black Sky Aerospace Company, which is based in Queensland, quite a separate company. Well, we have spoken previously on the ICESat mission, and uh, it's a satellite in orbit around the Earth that measures land elevation. Using the most advanced Earth-observing laser instrument NASA has ever flown in space, scientists have made precise, detailed measurements of how the elevation of ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica have changed over 16 years. We can actually see some processes at a scale that's almost long enough to tell us about the climate in those two places. Scientists took ice sheet elevation measurements from 2003, overlaid data from 2019, and analyzed where the data sets intersected in order to see where ice was lost or gained. For example, the study definitively shows that the East Antarctic ice sheet, the largest of all the ice sheets, is growing. 
But more importantly, uh, what we find is that growing is more than offset by increased losses coming from the West Antarctic Ice Sheet, which is thinning very rapidly as it responds to warmer ocean temperatures, specifically in the Amundsen Sea embayment area. The West Antarctic side, we are seeing strong thinning on the ice shelves, which is causing drawdown on the inland ice, um, on the grounded ice upstream. Most of that is being caused because of uh, changes in ocean heat flux underneath the ice shelves, which is causing them to thin. And then consequently, the buttressing force is being lost against the grounded ice, and the grounded ice is then flowing faster into the ocean and causing sea level rise. In Greenland, we're seeing different signatures. Again, in the center of the ice sheet in the plateau, we're seeing increased accumulation. So there is a slight increase in mass in the center, but the overall signal for Greenland is one of thinning, and that is being caused by ocean and atmospheric signals acting all around the edges of Greenland. So we're seeing 200 gigatons per year of ice flowing into the oceans, which is enough to raise sea level by about two thirds of a millimeter per year. Combine that with the almost 118 gigatons lost in Antarctica, and sea level has risen a total of 14 millimeters over the 16-year period due to ice sheet melt. It may seem small, but the small changes add up. What we expect by the end of the century is, you know, on the order of two, three, maybe four feet of sea level rise. And because we have all of our infrastructure that is um, built around the coast, we have a lot of vulnerability to a meter change in sea level rise. The potential impact from sea level rise is one critical motivation for the continued study of the mechanics driving the changes in the ice sheets. If we can understand those mechanisms and how they've played out over the last 30 years, well then we can start to look and, and think about how will those ice sheets respond to what we project the climate to be into the future. Now, new data from the old ICESat and the new ICESat-2 satellites is being compared to measure changes in the ice layers of the world. And that feature came courtesy of the Goddard Spaceflight Centre. Big news in Moorabbin, the new butcher shop opposite Woolworths is stocking the best genuine farmer-direct beef from Gippsland. Free-range grass-fed. Moorabbin Butchers, best value in Bayside. Moorabbinbutchers.com.au Southern FM sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr Nick Coatsworth, infectious diseases physician. Over 7 million Australians have taken the next step and received a COVID-19 vaccine. Thousands of GPs and vaccination clinics are currently providing services across the country. It's free, simple and the best way to protect ourselves and our community from COVID-19. Remember, we're not safe until we're all safe. To find out when it's your turn, visit australia.gov.au. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. The world has definitely changed since COVID-19 first emerged. And with the uncertainty created by the pandemic, more than ever we turn to science. I'm Professor Mary Louise McLaws, an epidemiologist in the control of infectious diseases. Science is not only giving us answers such as vaccines and a roadmap out, it also gives billions of us hope. This National Science Week, find your science 
at scienceweek.net.au. Hi, it's Mark Garden here from the Brass Oz and Indie Show. We feature lots of independent Australian acts that feature brass, like jazz, ska, and some of the unknown genres, folk and country and rock, but also some independent artists as well. Do tune in every Wednesday night between 10pm and midnight right here on 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. Planet Earth is blue. Last week, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change presented the first part of its 2021 report. A Rowan Dean sometimes rants on Sky News about global change, or rather what he sees as the lack of it. Ahead of the release of the IPCC report, Rowan predicted that it would have climate hysteria focused on the scary monster called Australia and the evils of the mining coal. Here is a part of what he said. It's all on again for the climate cult tomorrow when the IPCC, this is the UN climate change body, releases its latest landmark report on catastrophic global warming or heating or whatever they're calling it now. Get ready for a veritable deluge of terrifying, apocalyptic, doomsday-laden headlines. Already the Guardian has got in early and the scare the kiddies witless stakes with a newer, bigger, even deadlier gas than carbon dioxide. Something that has a warming potential more than 80 times worse than carbon dioxide. It's called methane. Yes, this new scarier gas is produced from shale gas wells, poorly managed conventional oil and gas extraction, and methane comes from the farming of animals. That's right, the latest villain in the climate cult's never-ending scare campaign are cows and sheep. Data from StatsNZ just released for the years 2007 to 2019 shows dairy emissions from the climate socialist paradise of St. Jacinda Ardern rose by 3.18% in 2019 to a total of 17,719 kilotons of carbon dioxide equivalent. But you watch. When the IPCC report is published this week, all the climate hysteria will be focused not on the hypocritical Ardern, but it will all be about the terrible climate change scary monster called Australia and the evils mining coal. That's this particular that's how this particular scary movie always ends. Well, Rowan Dean may well have just discovered methane, but on June the 9th and June the 16th, we here on The Space Show reported on methane sat and New Zealand's involvement in it. One of the reasons New Zealand is using methane sat is to monitor that country's agricultural methane emissions. 
Now, methane is responsible for 20% of global warming since the Industrial Revolution. In 2018, the food system contributed to one-third of all human-caused greenhouse gas emissions. Now, methane is around 30 times more potent than carbon dioxide over the space of a century. Now, this feature from the Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. Methane shows up nearly everywhere on our planet. It can come from a variety of sources, like wetlands, fossil fuels, and even livestock. These diverse sources add to the challenge of tracking this potent greenhouse gas. A molecule of methane is able to trap more heat than a CO2 molecule. In fact, it is the second leading gas that is contributing the climate change. And since the Industrial Revolution, global methane concentrations have doubled. It's contributed roughly 20 to 30 percent of the uh, climate change that we've experienced to date. And so there's an urgency in understanding uh, where the sources are coming from so that we can be better prepared uh, to mitigate methane emissions where there are opportunities to do so. By using a combination of field observations, airborne surveys, and data from international partners, NASA has been able to create a new model of the sources and global transport of methane. This model allows scientists to track the global methane budget and better understand the changes over time. Everything around methane tends to be a few years behind carbon dioxide, so we're just catching up to how important and how dynamic methane is as a greenhouse gas. We see these pulses of methane in different places, and when we look deeper, we understand that those pulses are occurring for different reasons. So we might see wetlands in one region, we might see industrial pollution in another area. With this new model, we can track the pulses of methane across the globe to better pinpoint the conditions and activities that may cause them. Methane is, is a difficult gas uh, for us to understand given the diversity of sources and then how the sources and the emissions get transported throughout the atmosphere. The 3D simulation that we've produced here helps us uh, better put together the entire story for the sources of methane and as well as its removal from the atmosphere. By taking a look at the story of methane, scientists and policymakers can better understand the sources of methane emissions and work to reduce this greenhouse gas. For more about methane, listen to our Space Show specials from New Zealand, broadcast on June the 9th and June 16. You can find them at space.southernfm.com.au. Uh, that's space southernfm.com.au then scroll down to near the bottom of the page where you'll find the list of 2021 programs click on that link and then scroll down to June 9 and June 16 and uh, while you're at the uh, southern you know the space.southernfm.com.au website you might like to look into some of our other features that we have there. We've got over 1,800 of them uh, up on the web at the moment. Now, let's go off to Mars and hear about methane as well. Thanks, Mary. It's been a pretty uh, exciting last few days, I must say. Um, in five minutes, I'm going to give you the history of methane on Mars, uh, <laughs> which started off a few years ago, actually, with um, uh, Earth-based sensing when Plumes were reported from Mauna Kea uh, infrared spectroscopy. And uh, so when we proposed the uh, SAM experiment on the, on the Curiosity rover, 
The mass spectrometer down in that region uh, has uh, noise, background contamination, uh, and so we invited Chris Webster to put a tunable laser spectrometer on SAM. Tunable laser spectrometer is a nice small device where light bounces back between two mirrors. And for a very small device, you get like many meters of path length and great sensitivity. So we got to the surface of Mars. Uh, the ground-based observations had been controversial, to say the least. And so we were going to go to Mars and, and, uh, and understand whether it was really there or not. It turned out it was still controversial. But uh, remember the date, June 15, uh, 2013. It was after we'd landed, after we'd made a few measurements, and they were kind of close to zero uh, within, the, within the noise of being zero. On June 15, 2013, uh, we saw a higher value, six parts per billion. That was interesting. It rapidly went away. That was uh, Mars year 31. You start Mars year counting from 1955, I guess. Uh, Mars year 32 in the northern spring, something really interesting. Uh, we saw a period of about four months where methane came up kind of between six and nine-ish parts per billion. We made four measurements over two months, and then it went away again. Uh, Mars year 33 in uh, northern autumn uh, going into winter. Again, we saw another value, uh, six parts per billion, which went away. Uh, and then really nothing in direct measurements in Mars year uh, 34. But in the meantime, what we had developed uh, was basically using a device we had developed to enrich noble gases on Mars to pull out xenon and such. Uh, we use that basically, uh, Charles Molespin, who's here, spent days in the lab uh, developing it, basically sucking the atmosphere uh, through these enrichment cells, scrubbing out the carbon dioxide, and basically enriching the methane in the tunable laser spectrometer by a factor of about 25. And we did that over multiple Mars years. We have about 10 points, Mars years 31, 32, 33, and 34. And those measurements were all below one part per billion between 0.2 and 0.6, and they kind of showed a seasonal variation. Uh, but we had never seen uh, enhanced methane, or methane plume, or spike, or whatever you want to call it, uh, with the enrichment experiment until last week. Uh, so the, this run was run uh, Wednesday uh, in the middle of the night, and then on Thursday we got the data back, and. Uh, Chris Webster's words were incredible and dumbfounded, and we were surprised. We saw 21 parts per billion, the highest we'd ever seen uh, in the enrichment mode, which was really interesting. So uh, that's a story uh, which rapidly somehow made its way to the New York Times. And uh, we decided anyway, with great help from Ashwin, we would scrap the weekend plan and make that run again. And we did make the run again. The data came, just came back. And in fact, the methane plume went away. It's, we measured it both with direct and with enrichment. It's back down now to below one part per billion, so kind of consistent with, with what we've seen all along. But just a couple things to note. Uh, I asked you to remember that date, uh, June 15, because uh, the day after that, uh, Mars Express planetary Fourier spectrometer had flown over Gale Crater, and they were using in a mode where basically they stared at Gale Crater, uh, quite complicated, but basically summing up hundreds of, of spectra, and they found 
what amounted to in their paper 46 tons of methane in an area that was kind of 250 kilometers by 250 kilometers, including Gale Crater. And so that was really fascinating. And other measurements before and after that where we had seen zero uh, methane, uh, they didn't see any as well. So that was very interesting. Uh, and they published that on, on April 1. You should never publish a methane paper on, on April 1, I guess. Um, so that's the story. Um, uh, a plume came and a plume went. We're, we're very confident of the, of the measurement. And I should say that uh, both Mars Express and Trace Gas Orbiter, which to date has not seen methane, although it only senses down to a few kilometers above the surface, uh, we're coordinating with them and we're, we're very happy to uh, make coordinated measurements and so on. So that's the long and the short story of the history of methane on Mars. Yeah, we're going to, uh, well, we've been looking at the atmosphere, in that case of Mars, but we're also looking at the atmosphere of the Earth. So why don't we have the Atmosphere Song by Tom Glazer and Dottie Evans, and this comes from the 1950s. The stratosphere just above the troposphere where is the tropopause it is in between where is the stratosphere under the ionosphere where is the exosphere highest on the scene all together all together they make up the atmosphere all together all together that's the atmosphere troposphere and stratosphere ionosphere and exosphere all together all together that's the atmosphere where is the weather made? Where is all the weather made? Where is the weather made? In the troposphere. Just above the troposphere Where is the tropopause? It is in between Where is the stratosphere? Under the ionosphere Where is the exosphere? Highest on the scene All together, all together They make up the atmosphere All together, all together That's the atmosphere Troposphere and stratosphere Ionosphere and exosphere All together, all together That's the atmosphere where is the weather made? Where is all the weather made? Where is the weather made? In the troposphere! For over two decades, the space show has been telling you the sad story of the felling of the Amazon forest. Now, we're able to bring you a good news story. The world is literally a greener place than it was 20 years ago. Data from two NASA satellites has revealed the source for much of this new foliage, India and China. Taken altogether, the greening of the planet represents an increase in leaf area on plants and trees equivalent to the area covered by all the Amazon rainforests. Compared to the early 2000s, there has been a 5% increase. China and India account for one-third of the greening. This despite these two containing only 9% of the planet's land area covered in vegetation. The effect stems mainly from 
ambitious tree planting in China and intensive agriculture in both countries. China has a national plan to conserve and expand forests. This plan was developed in an effort to reduce the effects of soil erosion, air pollution and climate change. The land area used to grow crops in both China and India is comparable to almost 2 million square kilometres. This has not changed much since the early 2000s. Both countries have increased both their annual total green leaf area and their food production. Now, this has been achieved through multiple cropping practices where a field is replanted to produce another harvest several times a year. Production of food has increased by over 35% since the year 2000. Well, this has been another episode in our Planet Earth series. Now, don't forget, we do have a website for the space show. It's called space.southernfm.com. So that's space.southernfm.com.au 